Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figilele Ngwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Nigeria's President Muhammad Buhari in South Africa on a state visit and youth activists call for greater inclusion of young people in Africa's development. In economics news, South African trade unions welcome a ruling ANC initiative to strengthen economy and in sports news, South Africa still hopeful of getting medals at the World Athletics Championships. First up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari kickstarts his state visit to South Africa at the Union Buildings in the capital Pretoria later this morning. The three-day visit is aimed at improving relations between the two nations. This follows the recent spate of attacks on foreign nationals, including Nigerians. Buhari will co-chair the 9th SA Nigeria Bi-National Commission with President Cyril Ramaphosa, which seeks to strengthen political and economic relations between the two countries, Ntebo Mukobo reports. Relations between Africa's largest economies have always had some turbulence. In 2015, Nigeria withdrew its ambassador to South Africa following attacks on foreign nationals. Again last month, in another spate of attacks on foreign nationals in the country, several businesses belonging to Nigerians accused of dealing in drugs were torched. But Nigerian Foreign Minister Jeffrey Onyama says they've welcomed South Africa's apology following the attacks. We're delighted that the two parties have agreed to work together to ensure that this never happens again. With both countries grappling with their stuttering economies, the two leaders will also focus on improving trade and economic ties. At least 14 people have been killed in a collapse at an illegal gold mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Government Minister Steve Mbikai says further three people had been taken to hospital with serious injuries. The accident occurred at a mine in the town of Kampene on Wednesday. In June, dozens of miners were killed when a copper cobalt mine in the DRC's Lulaba province collapsed. A retired Rwandan army major and 24 others have appeared in a military court in the capital, Gigali, on charges of conspiring against the government. Habib Mudasiru and his co-accused have not yet been asked to plead. The group is made up mostly of Rwandans but includes Burundians and Ugandans. They were reportedly captured in June during clashes between the Democratic Republic of Congo's army and rebel groups in the DRC South Kivu province. The group is accused of being part of the Rwandan National Congress led by General Kuyamba Nyamwasa, a former army chief who fell out with President Paul Kagame. Rwanda's government has repeatedly denied having soldiers in the DRC to fight rebel groups opposed to it. 
South Africa's Public Works Minister Patricia DeLille says there's a need for governments globally to respond to calls for urgent action on climate change. DeLille addressed the 12th Green Building Rating Tools gathering at Century City in Cape Town. She says the building industry, civil society and the private sector should play a role in creating more environmentally friendly structures. DeLille says her department will work towards global climate change standards as outlined at the 21st Conference of Parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. The COP21 agreement is the important one. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a world where resources are very scarce. And it's very important that we align our developmental goals with the goals of saving our planet. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump has angrily lashed out to Democrats leading the impeachment inquiry against him by saying they are wasting their time. During a press conference, he stepped up his attacks on Ada Schiff, the chairperson of the House Intelligence Committee, calling him a lowlife who should be investigated for treason. It said the Trump administration is attempting to frustrate the committee's inquiry into the president's phone call with the Ukrainian leader. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has confirmed that he listened to the phone call that has sparked an impeachment probe into Trump. The BBC's Chris Buckler has more. Donald Trump is doing nothing to hide his anger at the constant talk of impeachment inquiries and the many questions about his request Ukrainian authorities to investigate his political rival Joe Biden. Democrats say the Trump administration is trying to obstruct their inquiries, but they are pressing forward with their investigations into the president's actions. Later today, the former U.S. special envoy to Ukraine is scheduled to testify before congressional committees. Kurt Volker resigned from his post last week after it emerged that he was mentioned in a complaint by a whistleblower. And that's the news. Airlines at 7.30 Central African time. the globe every second there's always a breaking story Kulta Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa reporting for Channel Africa I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time George Muhango Channel Africa Blantyre reporting for Channel Africa this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari is in South Africa on a state visit amid strained relations between the two nations following the recent spate of attacks on foreign nationals, including Nigerians. Buhari will co-chair the 9th SA Nigeria National Com- Binational Commission with President Sul Ramaphosa later this morning. The meeting was preceded by the ministerial BNC in Pretoria on Wednesday, Today's BNC seeks to strengthen political and economic relations between the two countries as well as taking stock of the implementation of the over 30 bilateral agreements signed between the two sister republics, Ndebo Mugoba reports. 
Today sees another gathering aimed at improving relations between South Africa and Nigeria. Relations between Africa's largest economies have always had turbulence. In 2015, Nigeria withdrew its ambassador and high commissioner to South Africa following attacks on foreign nationals. Again last month, in another spate of attacks on foreign nationals in the country, several businesses belonging to Nigerians accused of dealing in drugs were torched resulting in retaliatory attacks on South African businesses in Nigeria. And today's state visit by the Nigerian president raises hopes to improve frosty relations and strengthen ties as both countries kickstart their stuttering economies. Nigerian Foreign Affairs Minister Jeffrey Onyama says they've accepted President Cyril Ramaphosa's apology following these attacks. And we're delighted that the two parties have agreed to work together to ensure that this never happens again and we do look forward to taking concrete measures together to ensure that we do not see a repeat of this. Our president also expressed his profound regrets at some of the retaliatory actions that were taken in Nigeria which the law enforcement agencies in Nigeria were very very quick to douse and address. And while some accuse South Africans of xenophobia, some Nigerian intellectuals beg to differ. Software engineering expert Dr. Charles Awuzi says South Africans are not xenophobic and not all Nigerians are criminals. There is this information out there that most Nigerians are criminals. Actually, in philosophy, we call it the fallacy of hasty generalization. That means because you saw one person do one thing, then you generalize that all people are like that. And on the South African side, the information that South Africans are xenophobic is inaccurate. It's a misinterpretation of the situation on the ground. I call it a media propaganda, not against South Africa, but against Africa in general. Every immigrant in South Africa should know that South Africa is dealing with a security challenge, and that is high crime rate. Just as Nigeria is dealing with security challenge, which is extremism. He implored all migrants in the country and leaders of their respective countries to understand the underlying socio-economic challenges affecting South Africans. The issue of xenophobia, it's complex in the sense that when you listen to the locals, you could feel their pain. And we shouldn't ignore that pain. You see, when you ignore pain, something happens. It grows. Not outside, but internally. And our leaders, especially leaders from other countries, other African countries, they should not ignore the pains of the locals. Because if we do, like I said, it's going to grow, but internally. And when the day comes, when it will be revealed, it will be a tsunami. So we should listen to the locals and find out what their pains are, and then sit down and find lasting solution to their pains. International Relations Minister Dr. Naledi Panda, on the other hand, says the 32 bilateral agreements signed between the two countries should be used to benefit ordinary citizens of both nations. I am pleased to note that our 32 agreements and the various memoranda of understanding do have place of action in our governments. Our shared goal and vision is to see real change in our people's livelihoods. We want to see our youth ed educated, trained and developed to become responsible citizens of our nations. We want to ensure that women enjoy equality so that they have full participation in our economies. We want to create sustainable jobs that ensure our people are independent, self-sustained, enabled and empowered to take charge of their own future and destiny. The two-way trade between South Africa and Nigeria is standing at just over 56 billion rand. And as an oil scarce country, 
The trade balance between the two countries is skewed in favor of Nigeria, with Pretoria importing goods well over 50 billion rand. I am Debumokobo in Pretoria. South Africa's ruling ANC's highest decision-making body, the National Executive Committee, has endorsed the district development model. It seeks to aid the development of a country's 44 district municipalities, including eight metropolitans. Following President Cyril Ramaphosa's endorsement of a dis- district development plan in August, the ANC-NEC has taken a decision to back the plan. Abongile Dumako reports. The ANC top brass and key role players in the economic sector addressing a well-attended media briefing. Local government issues formed a significant part of the governing party's NEC deliberations about economic revival. Ramaphosa endorsed it two months ago. His party's other senior leaders have now endorsed the plan. Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma says the model is aimed at having an integrated plan per district and various roles for government, communities and civil society. We have uh, done a lot, but we have not been able to maximize our impact, in part because we've been working in silos. The departments at National have been working in silos, but also across the spheres. So we looked at how we can remedy this so that we can work in a more integrated and coordinated way. The ANC has issued a stern warning to its employees at local government level to perform or face consequences for underperformance. ANC Secretary General Ace Mahashule says the last ANC-NEC meeting has agreed that its officials at municipalities must refrain from acts of corruption because it affects service delivery and leads to protests. Mahashule also says they are currently reviewing ANC candidates ahead of the 2021 local government elections. The National Executive Committee agreed on a process to review the ANC candidate selection process as we move towards 2021 elections. This Referring to the recent utterances by the SACP that it may contest the upcoming local government elections alone. Mahashule said they'd soon hold a political alliance council to iron out all the underlying issues within the tripartite alliance. We are going to have a political alliance council so that where there are areas of disagreement, because we had a, a, a real good four days where people were open and frank, and our differences are not so much, but we said where there are still issues to be addressed and flagged, we have actually made sure that we will come back and address those issues. Four ANC members have been added to the highest decision-making body, among others, Dr. Blade Nzimande, Lindy Wemaseko, Ayanda Lodlo, and Firoz Kachalia. I am Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity. 
an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. South Africa's Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo has reserved judgment on former South African Revenue Service Commissioner Tom Moyani's application to cross-examine Public Enterprises Minister Pavin Gordon. Moyani's lawyer advocate Dalim Bofu says Gordon's affidavit calls for cross-examination as it makes damning allegations against Moyani. He says Gordon's claim that Moyani laid criminal charges against him as an act of malice is incorrect and should be tested during cross-examination. Bofu was making representations at the state capture inquiry in Pakhtan, Johannesburg. Naledi Ngobo reports. Mbofu says Moyani laid criminal charges against Gordan for the establishment of the so-called rogue unit in the interest of corporate governance and not as an act of malice as suggested by Gordan. Mbofu says Gordan is not above cross-examination and should answer questions about why he is accusing Moyani of malicious intent. Only question now for the chair is, does Mr. Godan implicate Mr. Moyane in state capture? Obviously, yes. Is it uh, necessary for Mr. Moyane to clear his name in that respect? Obviously, yes. Uh, is it in the interest of the State Capture Commission to know whether Mr. Moyane is furthering state capture or not? Obviously, yes. And if those three yeses are existent, then leave to cross-examine must be granted. Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo says Gordon's affidavit to the commission stated that Moyani's actions furthered the agenda of state capture and therefore may allow for Moyani to cross-examine Gordon. Zondo says Gordon's affidavit further states that Moyani abused legal processes in laying charges against him. The problem is that he went further and he says, although I say what I've said about malice, I do believe, or what I do mean is that uh, Mr. Moyane abused the legal process and he abused it in furtherance of the agenda of state capture. That's the part that complicates things. Goran's legal representative, advocate Michelle LaRue, says Moyane should appear before the commission to address issues in which he has been linked to state capture and not to cross-examine Gordon. LaRue denied that Gordon's affidavit accused Moyane of furthering the state capture agenda when he laid criminal charges against him relating to the so-called rogue unit. The commission absolutely needs to hear more about how Mr. Moyani was or was not part of the state capture project. But it must hear it from Mr. Moyani. Yes, but it that, must be a version from Mr. Moyani that deals with his time at SARS, yes. deals with his time at correctional services where he was mentioned in relation to the Basasa payments, deals with his role in the Waterkloof landing that has also been no, no, no. I, 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 So there's a version from Mr. Moyani that would assist the work of the commission. Yes, no, no, it's no. not by cross-examining <laughs> Minister Gordon on his beliefs based on the Nugent Commission. 
The commission is expected to hear the testimony of former Free State Agriculture HOD Peter Tabete. I'm Naledingobo in Johannesburg. South Africa's just, Chief Justice Mukhweng Mukhweng will give the nation a glimpse into the work of the judiciary today to mark Judiciary Day. The judiciary is one of the three arms of state alongside the executive and parliament. They all function independently. These two arms of state report to parliament except the judiciary. The constitution, which guarantees the independence of the judiciary, states that the judiciary is only accountable to the constitution and the law. Ahead of Judiciary Day, we'll look at how, from a practical point of view, the judiciary accounts. Zaline Merrington reports. The South African judiciary is generally lauded for its fierce independence. One way of keeping judges accountable is through the appeals process in the courts. Or a complaint can be laid with the Judicial Services Commission, a body created by the Constitution, to hold the judiciary accountable. But some argue this is not operating as efficiently as it should. The director at Lobby Group Accountability Now, Paul Hoffman, says the JSC needs a complete overhaul. My main concern with the JSC is that it doesn't operate as it should because it is dominated by politicians and it contains an informal uh, caucus which uh, enjoys a majority and can force its will on others. I would much prefer to see uh, retired judges, senior clergy, top trade unionists and businessmen uh, in a smaller body that uh, holds the judiciary to account. The JSC consists of 23 people, among them 10 politicians from both houses of parliament. It is chaired by the head of the judiciary, the Chief Justice. Besides dealing with complaints, the body is also responsible for the appointment and promotion of judges. The body has been criticised for the slow pace of resolving matters. One example is the 10-year-old case of the Western Cape Judge President John Chlope, who had allegedly tried to improperly influence two judges who were presiding over matters involving former President Jacob Zuma. Alison Tilly from Judges Matter, a coalition of civil society groups that monitor the transparency of the JSC, argues that one way to make the Commission effective is by dealing with its governance more efficiently. I think the difficulty is that within the system you have to have parties, and I don't mean political parties, I mean people, um, who are prepared to own the system and make it work. And uh, it's obviously a difficult thing to do, to hold your your peers to account. Um, But I think um, judges take an oath that they will act without fear or favour, and I think that has to relate to their their peers and their colleagues as as well as uh, to, to anybody else. In recent weeks, the judiciary has come under fire for allegedly being captured. But the Executive Secretary of the Council for the Advancement of the Constitution, Law Senaidu, says this seems to be nothing more than an attempt to undermine the good work of the judiciary. A lot of those so-called allegations have emerged on social media, quite clearly fake news. This is quite clearly part of a a narrative to undermine the integrity and the autonomy of of the judiciary as a whole because people who, in particular, who have been implicated in state capture are going to feel the effects of the courts as these matters come before our courts now. Former head of political science at the University of the Western Cape, Keith Gottschalk, says that in a democracy these tensions are bound to crop up. By definition, judges are the only institution that may actually overrule a democratically elected government that say a law itself is illegal. So those tensions are a permanent part of democracy 
And South Africa ranks among the leading democracies of the world, India and the USA, in that every year judges take decisions which are quite politically controversial. That report by Zaline Merrington. The victimization narrative that surrounds African youth and is disempowering overlooks youth agency while keeping young people marginalized on the continent. That was among the key messages delivered during a briefing of the United Nations Security Council on mobilizing the youth towards silencing the guns in Africa by 2020. With nearly 20% of the continent population aged between 15 and 24, the African Union has recognized that youth must be at the core of its initiative including eradicating conflicts throughout the continent. Shown Bryce Peace reports. The 8,629th meeting of the Security Council is called to order. There are 220 million young people in Africa, a number expected to rise to around 350 million in the next decade. And while they have been change agents, most recently in Algeria and Sudan, they have also taken to the streets in Tunisia, Zimbabwe, Burkina Faso and elsewhere, demanding and achieving political change. Listen to Aya Chebi, the AU's youth envoy. I come from that generation that started the first 21st century revolutions. We stood up for our rights and not only demanded, but led change. We, move from, we moved from being perceived as subjects to active citizens and change makers. Among the key demands is for greater youth participation in conflict prevention, peacemaking and peacebuilding, and for institutions like the Security Council to hear more regularly from young people who offer different perspectives on these issues. First and foremost, this is a question of narrative. Unfortunately, when African youth get the worst leaders' attention, they are talked about as perpetrators of violence, with images carrying the guns, as the dangerous class, as the number of the unemployed, as, mar- as migrants dying in the Mediterranean, and as a youth bulge. But they are not spoken about as a generation of peace builders that changed the course of history, that revolutionized technology that inspired a new ways of citizen engagement. African youth do not resign themselves to the hardships of their situation. They are using their agency and creativity to build the Africa we want. Also of concern are gaps that exist in economic and social development in many parts of Africa that risk radicalization and violent extremism by young people who lack adequate alternatives. Victor Ochin is a 34-year-old UN Global Goals Ambassador and a peace activist from Uganda. Imagine if we shared with the rest of the world, as Africa, the resources in a way that benefits Africans. Where would Africa be by now? And of course, some question that has been coming in, which is among is a growing concern among young Africans. United Nations is key. We need to promote, bring United Nations closer to the people. Let them understand the values and principles and declarations and treaties signed, they will be able to respect the rules of engagement. But the big question which everyone is asking, when will we have Africa as a permanent member of UN Security Council? It's a question that Security Council has to look at it now if you have to maintain legitimacy of such important institution. As the need for silencing the guns in Africa is no longer regarded as a choice, but an absolute necessity. A view shared by the UN Special Advisor on Africa, B.N. Skawanas. 
it must always be recognized that the large majority of youth in Africa are in reality peaceful and enterprising. They are agents and partners of peace, the connective tissue and have a critical contribution to make at national, regional, and global levels, breaching the silos of development, human rights, humanitarian, and peace and security. If the right investments in youth are made and their social, political, and economic engagement recognized and nurtured, societies may reap a peace dividend. With calls for governments, development partners, civil society, the private sector, and multilateral institutions to remove structural barriers that prevent greater youth participation in the development agenda. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. On the headlines, Nigerian President Mohamedou Mohari kickstarts his state visit to South Africa at the Union Buildings in the capital Pretoria this morning. The three-day visit is aimed at improving relations between the two nations. The United States has reopened its embassy in Somalia. The previous one had been closed in January 1991 during the country's civil war. And South Africa's Public Works Minister Patricia DeLille says there's a need for governments globally to respond to calls for urgent action on climate change. Those are the stories making headlines. The Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum, AWIF, 
together with the Technical Center for Agricultural and Rural Cooperation and African Women in Agribusiness Network, are hosting a Value for Her training workshop on leading agribusinesses for success workshop from the 29th to the 30th of October this year in Cape Town, South Africa. This event, entitled Leading Agribusinesses for Success, provides women in agribusiness to strengthen their enterprises in Africa. Join women selected and invited from across the African continent with smart skills in business leadership and management for growth through targeted skills building and strengthen your capacity to harness and market opportunities continentally and globally. Beat the rush and pre-register at registration desks in front of Hall 8 and 9 at Cape Town International Convention Center. Channel Africa will be there. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The Malawi Council of Churches is backing an abortion law that allows for the termination of pregnancy in certain instances like rape, incest or defilement. MCC is Malawi's largest grouping of churches representing Catholics and Protestants. George Mango reports from Planta. The Malawi Council of Churches supports the change because of what it says high number of Malawian women dying in an attempt to abort pregnancy using unsafe procedures. Abortion is illegal in Malawi under section 243 of the Penal Code, but the law demands that it should be carried out by any person with reasonable care and skill to carry out an operation to preserve mother's life. Health studies show that 1,000 Malawian women are treated for complications of unsafe abortion annually. The main reason is that of unwanted pregnancies. These many result from factors such as failure to use contraceptives. Approximately 17% of maternal deaths in Malawi are attributable to unsafe abortion. Recent admissions have proved that they are due to unsafe abortions. At Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital, a major referral gynecology admissions are many. Dr. Bonongo of Queens in Blanta also believes new laws are needed. Okay, when we look at our acute gynecological admissions, uh, we I would say about a fifth of the, oh, sorry, about half of those patients who come with acute problems uh, in the gyne ward are due to complications of miscarriages. Uh, about 30 to 40 percent of those patients are due to uh, uh, induced. Uh, unsafe abortions. 30 to 40 percent miscarriage and unsafe abortions are recorded. This is why to counter this coalition on prevention of unsafe abortion, COPWA, in Malawi, continues to engage stakeholders in debates. Recently, COPWA argued that Malawi is better off legalizing abortions. One of the local chiefs, Chief Lukwa, said there is need to criminalize men who deny responsibility. Another research says Malawi's consumption of contraceptives is at 42%. Therefore, 58% of Malawians don't use contraceptives, meaning they are likely to have unplanned pregnancies, something to the dismay of more people. Chief Chikumbu from Mulanje, not long time ago, backed the idea. However, most people want government, legal and human rights campaigners to scale up providing information and education on family planning methods and use of contraceptives at all levels of the society so that people get pregnant only through choice and not by accident. At the moment, if you go to the hospitals, especially in gynecology wards, they will tell you that 30% of the space is being occupied by unsafe abortion patients. 
It is then that you will realize that Malawi can save $350 million or $972,000 every year that can be used to address equally important health problems. More divisions between the religious sector, human rights and legal campaigners signal one thing at the moment. Continued debate on the matter before any decision is taken. Dr. Bonongwe of Queens in Blantyre again. In Malawi, if we're going to have enabling laws, it will be safe for them to abort in hospitals under safe conditions. We know now that, and it's already documented, that women are dying because of uh, uh, unsafe abortion. And about 17% of our maternal deaths are due to unsafe abortions or complications of unsafe abortion. So indeed, it's, it's proper that we look at our laws to enable them that women should have an access to unsafe abortion. In addition to that, as a nation, we also need to look at other ways of preventing and unplanned and intended pregnancies because our contraception uptake is very low. Basic post-abortion care is estimated to cost $23 per case. More severe cases requiring a blood transfusion treatment of sepsis or surgical repair of the reproductive tract can increase costs dramatically. Albert Shar is a media campaigner. When we look at abortion, we are looking at two things, the life of the fetus and the life of the mother. And uh, at all conditions, one of the two is at risk. Either the mother will be safe and the fetus will go, or either the, the fetus may be safe and then we, we put to risk the mother. And then if we now we are to look at the other, other rights of, of these two, we balance always when we are talking about human rights, everyone is supposed to, be, to benefit from the human rights. But then we balance at who benefits at this point and who is not going to benefit at this time, and we are talking of a fetus and against the mother. Statistics say half of the women treated for post-abortion complications are below 25 years old. Four out of five are married and almost two-thirds live in rural areas. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Teachers in the DRC have gone on strike in some parts of the country only a month after the introduction of free education in primary schools. The teachers from Catholic and Protestant schools are demanding salary increases. Januel Bamweza has more from Kinshasa. It's indeed on September 2nd that the Democratic Republic of Congo's government decision on free of charge education was implemented in the public primary schools all over this country. According to the decision, parents do not have to pay school fees for their children and they have not to pay for their teachers' salaries anymore since the state has cancelled all the fees and decided to improve teachers' salaries and working conditions. But this is not what has been realized as we reach the end of the first month of free of charge education. The fees have been cancelled but teachers complain for not receiving the pay according to the government decision. That's indeed the starting of the strike. This has started in both the North Kivu and South Kivu provinces where teachers from both Catholic and Protestant schools are demanding the government to increase their salaries, to pay them on time and to provide teaching facilities to the schools. The strike will stop only when the government will respond to the teachers' demand, according to the spokesperson of teachers of the Protestant schools in the North Kivu province, Bahala Shamavu. <laughs> 
We'll stop striking only when all the teachers will be paid and parents won't pay anymore. Otherwise, strike will continue. continue. The situation is starting slowly here in Kinshasa as well. Some schools under the Catholic management didn't open this Wednesday. At Boboto College, only very few learners were seen at school as teachers warned them to not come since the strike is starting to demand their work conditions improvement until the government can respond. This Boboto College teacher didn't want to be named but had this to say. Till now we are wondering what shall we do because we are parents. We have wives and we have children. So what shall we do? That's why you see we are making some trouble so that he has to take care about what he said. He said himself that in primary school, the people must study for free. Till now, he didn't pay us. There are some schools they are asking now people's money. Try to understand, someone who is a parent, my children who are studying outside, I don't have something, so what shall I do? He told us, believe or not, at the end of the month, he's going to pay us. Now we are in 2nd of October. Nothing special. So what shall we do? What teachers are now regretting is that they have been under parents' management since they lasted more than 20 years and were getting their pay on time and things were moving smoothly. This teacher believes the government is not making it and parents should come back and restart paying everything as it was before so that this country's children can study properly. Parents, if in there is not something which is sufficient, but they were giving relief, it is a few money, but this money gonna help us to do something. Government decided they're gonna pay us till now, even though the fewest one didn't give us. So, even do yourself try to understand. But don't forget that the education is the first thing in the country. Parents, they were giving us, and if it is not sufficient, but they will pay, even though the fewest they were giving us before, there's to give us, and we're gonna stay keep on parents, yes, to pay us because what the government decided. It, they are not really able to realize what they said. Why don't you trust this government? Because they said uh, before arriving at the end of the month, they're gonna pay us. We arrived now, we're in October, and we are renting houses. What shall we do? Water, what shall we do? We have many things we are doing, even though for feeding ourselves and my children, we are unable, we don't have money. As long as I'm a teacher in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, that's why we say the parents themselves, the months uh, return by paying us. It's indeed the Democratic Republic of Congo's constitution that says education has to be free of charge for all these countries' children to access and become important for the future of the DRC, although the previous governments have never implemented this. Teachers are supporting the free of charge education, but what's disappointing for them is that the government has failed to meet their requirements at the very first month, and this has brought more frustration. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The collapse of classrooms in the private school in Kenya last week, which led to the death of eight pupils and injuries to at least 64 others, has shifted focus to schools in Kenya's informal settlements. The introduction of free primary education in 2002 may have opened the doors for why open the doors wide for Kenyan children to access with great success, but reports show the gains are not equally distributed, with millions still out of school and millions opting for informal schools, leading to inequality in the East African nation's education sector. Sarah Kimani has more. It 
is mid-morning in Nairobi's Kawangware informal settlement. We're just in time for a geometry class at the Mwangaza United Primary School. Mwangaza, Swahili for light is different. The rusty corrugated iron sheets have a new coat of paint in anticipation of Education Ministry officials and announced visits that started in informal settlements last week. The temporary structures which easily fit into this low-income area act as classrooms with pupils squeezed within the available space. It has been in operation since 1994. Godfrey Moendoa is the proprietor of Mongaza United Primary School. We have uh, only one public school which is nearby, Katina Primary, which is three kilometers away. This is just one out of the thousands of low-cost private schools in Kenya. Data from a coalition of education rights, civil society groups and Kenya's education ministry indicate that at least 47% of children living in Kenya's informal settlements attend low-fee paying schools, known as alternative provision of basic education and training upbeat schools. In Nairobi alone, almost two in every three children, that is about 63%, living in the informal settlements are enrolled in these schools. Indeed, the schools have mushroomed in the low-income areas out of a need. The Ministry of Education's official data shows that private schools increased from 5,534 in 2011 to 8,919 in 2015. There was, however, very little expansion of public schools. Charles Sowino is the chairman of APBET. And we have not had a case whereby there are no, there is no learning in this school that there are no people, I mean there are no teachers. Teachers have been there. So the attitude that um, they, we don't have teachers, teachers are there. Mongaza currently has a population of 271 children, including a daycare center. Most people in these settlements earn a living from menial jobs. Without enough money to afford babysitters, the schools act as secure spaces to leave their young ones. That report by Sarah Kimani. It's 7.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhugu. Good morning. South Africa's largest trade federation, COSATU, has welcomed the ruling ANC National Executive Committee's initiative to strengthen the country's economy. The NEC met over the weekend in Benoni, Gauteng, to discuss the strengthening local government, economic recovery and transformation strategy, among other things. ANC Secretary-General Ace Mahashul announced that they will soon have a political alliance council to iron out all the underlying issues within the Tripartite Alliance. Kusatu's parliamentary coordinator, Matthew Parkster, says that there are still issues of concern. And I think we appreciate in particular that we received a presentation not just from the Minister of Finance, Tito Mboweni, but also quite progressive, detailed proposals, economic strategies from the Minister of Trade and Industry, Ibrahim Patel, as well as a mining and energy strategy from Gwedi Mantashe and a presentation from the Minister of Public Enterprises, Pravin Gordon. As COSATU, we remain deeply concerned and opposed to many of the proposals by the Minister of Finance, in particular the labour market issues. The Minister of Finance proposed to scrap the minimum wage in effect. To remain opposed to the proposal by Treasury to privatize ESCOM through the back door. And we're going to fight to protect all the workers' jobs at ESCOM and the other SOEs. 
Several ministers in South Africa have written to the National Assembly Speaker to inform her that state-owned entities falling under their departments are not able to submit their annual reports. The Public Finance Management Act requires that all SOEs submit audited annual reports to Parliament within six months after the end of the financial year. However, Ministers Pravin Gordon of Public Enterprises, Bladen Zimande of Higher Education and Gwede Mandashe of Mineral Resources and Energy have informed the Speaker that several entities will not submit their reports on time. Joseph Musia reports. Minister Gordon says the SAA board has informed him that the newly appointed interim executives need more time to submit the required information for audit to the Auditor General. He says the SA Express board, due to financial constraints, has also not been able to finalize its annual financial statements. Another entity that reports to him, Alexco, is also experiencing severe financial problems and has not been able to finalize its annual report. Minister Mantasha has reported that the Nuclear Energy Corporation will only be able to submit its annual report by the 31st of October. Minister Nzimande says the Auditor General has not finalized the audit of the National Student Financial Aid Scheme because of a material issue which requires further analysis and evaluation. Joseph Musia, SABC News, Parliament. An official says the tourist arrivals at Zimbabwe's prime resort Victoria Falls are expected to increase by 20% this year, largely driven by international source markets. Zimbabwe's source markets include the United Kingdom, United States of America, Australia, Germany and South Africa, among others. Employers Association of Tourism Operators, President Lemon Dumguasi, told Newsday that the number of visitors to Victoria Falls, the southern African country's flagship destination, is expected to grow by 20% over the 2018 figures. Namibia's Deputy Auditor General, Goms Manet, has called on local authorities as well as regional and town councils to desist from using accounting consultants who are not adding value to their work nor transferring the needed skill. Manette said this at the Public Sector's Internal Auditors Conference. The conference was attended by representatives from all local authorities, the Auditor General's Office and the Finance Ministry to discuss whether accountability matters in the public sector. Brexit negotiators for the European Union say they have already identified serious problems with new withdrawal plans put to them by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The UK is supposed to exit the bloc by the end of this month. The BBC's Damien Grammaticus has more. EU officials say that as it stands, it does not solve the issue of the Irish border and so threatens both the peace process and the functioning of the EU's single market. They say it lacks detail about how the UK would ensure any necessary checks happen even away from the border and about what exemptions from EU customs procedures the UK wants to be granted to Northern Irish businesses. The European Parliament's Brexit Committee will publish a detailed response later today laying out its concerns with the UK proposals point by point. The US dollar is trading at 359.88 Nigerian Naira, 10.90 Botswana Pula, 102.81 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.1 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.14 Brazilian roll, 65.23 Russian ruble, 70.95 Indian rupee. 
7.14 Chinese Yuan and 15.29 to the South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 81 pence to the British pound and at 91 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold $1,499, platinum $886. Dollars pounds a brand crude oil fifty seven dollars seventy two cents a barrel. From an African perspective, this remains your favorite channel. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with rugby news. South African Rugby Union has announced it would launch an internal investigation into allegations Locke Eben Edsbeth assaulted and racially abused a homeless man just before the Rugby World Cup. The announcement came a day after South Africa's rise. Hamwash Dog said it would take legal action against the star player. The Human Rights Commission announced it would institute legal proceedings against Edsbeth in the Equality Court tomorrow. The 27-year-old Elizabeth allegedly assaulted and insulted and pointed a gun at a 42-year-old homeless man in Langeban in August. He was named in South Africa's squad for the World Cup in Japan just a day after the allegations surfaced on social media. Christian Lailifano is back at fly half and teenager Jordan Pitaya will make his Wallabies debut on the wing after... Coach Michael Chaker overhauled his team for Saturday's Rugby World Cup Pool D match against Uruguay. Well, I think so. I think he's got a lot of talent, Jordan. Right? And we'll, we'll see it for the first time. This will be the first game I've ever been able, been involved with him in a game. So uh, he, he, we, we don't want to, at the same time, he's just starting out. So we'll just let him get into the flow and see how he feels. He's got a couple of very experienced campaigners next to him in Dane and Kirtley. So uh, um, he'll he'll have plenty of, uh, of experience around him to talk him through. But like I said, he's, he's a good young man, good young player, and um, I'm sure he'll, he'll love it running out there on the weekend. The Wallabies will be looking to get back to winning ways against the South Americans in Oita after their agonizing 29-25 loss to Wales in Tokyo last weekend. Liali Fano returns at fly half with Nick White at scrum half, reuniting the halfback pairing that started Australia's opening match against Fiji, where they came from behind to win it. And means Bernard Foley, who starred at 10 against Wales, misses out completely in the 23-man squad. Uh, that Bernard, uh, well, I think that he struggled a little bit on the weekend, uh, no doubt about that. And Christian, um, he found his feet pretty well in the test matches this year. And Matt Tamu has played very well there as well at finishing for us. So I think um, Bernard, he's working hard on getting himself back to the team. You know, he's, he's been training hard and, you know, he did some good things on the weekend, other things he'd want to improve on. Finally, Athletics 
Distance runner Dominic Scott Efford was the standout performer for the South African team last night, booking a place in the women's 5,000-meter final at the IWAF World Championships in Doha, Qatar. Scott Efford finished eighth in her first round hit in 15 minutes, 05.01 seconds, keeping her campaign afloat with a solid performance on day six of the showpiece. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari begins state visit to South Africa and youth activists call for greater inclusion of young people in Africa's development. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza and Tutongobeni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Muzat with the song title Party After.